Thursday edition, Locked on NBA, David Locke along with Ben Golliver in the midst of very serious social issues and all the rest. Basketball is back. Feels a little bit strange to be this excited about it, but I think if you can put it in its isolation in its spot, maybe it's more important because it gives us something to release. I don't know how you're supposed to feel about all these things, but I'm David Locke, joined by Washington Post, Ben Golliver. Ben, how are you today? I'm good. No, David, I share your mixed feelings, man. Uh, I think that part of me is is kind of relieved and happy that they finally reached, uh, you know, kind of a conclusion after weeks of haggling back and forth. And part of me is just really kind of confused and almost disappointed in the NBA regarding the timing. I mean, I guess I would just put it to you with this kind of a hypothetical. I mean, imagine if the NFL had put forward a plan that didn't take the bare minimum number of teams, you know, it took 22 teams, uh, more than you would need for the playoff, that announced it, essentially announced it, without uh, laying out the specifics of their testing or health and safety program. If they did it after, uh, you know, Roger Goodell in this case really hasn't been public for, you know, nearly two months in terms of any meaningful way, um, and they were essentially trying to put, you know, what is uh, an overwhelmingly African-American league, uh, at, which is at a higher risk for the coronavirus, um, you know, uh, you know, into a situation where we're announcing this comeback right in the middle of almost a week straight of nationwide protests that have swept more than 100 cities uh, and have seen lots and lots of, uh, you know, violence and, and clashes between police and, and protesters, you know, across the country. I think if the NFL had done that uh, lock, they would have gotten killed, you know, from a public relations standpoint. And I think obviously the NBA has earned the benefit of the doubt in terms of how they handle social justice issues over the course of the years. Uh, but I think in this case, this is incredibly bad timing. I mean, they backed themselves into a corner with how long it took to, to pull a plan together, but to sort of release this plan, announce these details, and what I view as the most fraught uh, moment from a racial standpoint of my entire life, uh, you know, and I was born in 1983, I just find it very out of step. You know, you Patrick Beverly, the Clippers guard, tweeted, uh, now is not the time for basketball. And look, this is a team that's in the title hunt that came in to this season obsessed with winning a championship. And to me, that, that statement from him says it all. So who knows? You know, maybe a week will pass and we'll we'll move through these kind of conflicted feelings and these questions. But I was, frankly, uh, very surprised by how this played out from the NBA. All right, so I think you put a lot of different items in that, some of which I think have some validity. Think Some I think I did, they didn't have a choice. I, I don't know if I can break them all down. On this health and safety issue in regards to, you know, that COVID-19 has impacted the African-American population more, like, I think you have to – believe that there that there's some understanding and some consultation going on whether it's with Fauci or whoever it's with for the safety of the athletes like I I I think that that I don't think that add-on pile-on is totally fair here now the other idea that in some way they should have delayed the announcement of this starting because it's 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 not a it's appropriate in the with the movement that's taking place right now maybe some validity of that but there is a chance that this movement is in its infancy, right? There, I, I don't know. It feels very different to me right now. If it is, in fact, in its infancy and Patrick Beverly says this is the wrong time, 
when's the right time for them? If they delay because of that and the movement continues, don't they box themselves into even a worse corner? I don't disagree that the timing wasn't good. I just don't know that it could that they know it can get better. Well, I think that's kind of a fair question to ask is like, you know, is it appropriate to be having, you know, protests on one channel and NBA basketball on the next channel? I mean, I guess it will be potentially unavoidable if we get to that situation in late July and there's still significant unrest. But uh, to me, it's uh, it's not great timing on the piece about uh, the African-American uh you know, rates of COVID, I would just add that, look, it's not just about the players who are obviously going to be at lower risk than um, people who are their normal age uh, because they're in, in excellent fitness, but it's also about the coaches um, who are going to now potentially, you know, if you're uh, in a higher age group and you're an African-American, you're, you're in a high risk group. I mean, you are definitely susceptible to some serious things happening from this disease. And I think that uh, clearly this would not be going forward as is if they didn't have the approval from the players. But what I would love to hear from the players union, and so this is not just pointing the finger at Adam Silver, this is pointing the finger at the players too, is um, them putting forward exactly what they want, you know, in terms of protection, health, and safety, and them, you know, putting forward the idea that they've communicated all of the, uh, you know, challenging situations here from a health standpoint to their players, and those players understand that, look, it's very easy to think, oh, okay, well, um, the very best players in the league want to play, so therefore I want to play too if you're just a kind of a rank-and-file player. And I just want to make sure that you know the education factor is there because bottom line is, as we've said before, indoor activity in close contact, full contact, where you're sharing a ball and you're sweating all over each other is high-risk behavior. All the doctors would tell you that. Having 22 teams is riskier than having 16 teams. The doctors would tell you that. Um, as well and so and having a bubble that's not a strict bubble where you're able to you know participate in uh, some other types of activities which is some of the early reporting coming out is again riskier than than having a completely strict bubble where there's basically no contact and so I just want to make sure the players understand what the risks are here completely top to bottom and what I would have loved to see before all of this is the NBA laying out its entire testing strategy how it plans to keep people safe and everything else we've seen that in isolated bits when it comes to uh, the practice facilities in terms of the steps players have to go through to maintain social distance and, uh, you know, the, the team staffers wearing masks and gloves and things of that nature. But I think before we start talking about putting a date on when the games are going to be and everything else, uh, you know, we have to address the health part first. I mean, remember, it was Adam Silver himself who at his last uh, public press conference said, and this is going to be about the data, not the date. The data has not improved that much, no matter what they try to say. Uh, this is more about the date, and now they have a date without uh, you know, the, the supporting data or without a, a health plan uh, to complement it. I think that they deserve uh, the criticism on those fronts. What scenario would you have played then? I mean, well, I would, uh, I would have thought longer and hard about it. If it was up to me, I likely would have canceled the, the balance of this season. I don't think that um, you know, we're in a, a situation personally where if I had to make that call, I would have felt comfortably uh, ethically. Uh, making that call. But I understand 100% the dilemma that they're in in terms of needing to generate revenue. But I don't think that you can paint this as anything other than a money grab. If you've got 22 teams, including the Washington Wizards and the Phoenix Suns, who have virtually no chance of making the real playoffs, and you're trying to run out eight extra regular season games for all these guys, this is so many extra uh, contacts uh, between you know any of these individual players and these teams that are adding significant risk uh, to anyone who happens to be in that bubble. I mean, I think that 
Uh, I would have certainly tried to make it a stricter bubble, like I mentioned. I would have brought the teams down to uh, 16 at the absolute most. Um, but I would have had uh, more reservations than I think that they've had uh, in terms of laying this thing out. I would have wanted to see more progress on the case counts. I would have wanted to see uh, wider scale availability of testing across the country, a situation that has improved but isn't all the way there. And I would have also wanted to lead with, uh, you know, lead with the health. If I was going to be bringing this season back, I would have announced all my health procedures first. We saw baseball attempt to do something along those lines in terms of laying out some of the steps that they wanted to do. And I think the NBA needed to uh, to do it the, the right way. To me, they just put the, the car before the horse. I don't really want to, like, I, I want to push you a little because I think your comments are pretty strong here. And I'm not sure... I'm not sure that I'm with you on this entirely. So on a few levels, one is the idea that a business is doing something for money. I don't know when that became a problem. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a problem necessarily. Look, I, I said, I understand. I think reasonable people can disagree on how you, how you balance these priorities. But to me, when, you're concocting a play-in schedule and all these extra regular season games that you don't need to crown a champion. And as we've discussed, I mean, by far the biggest ratings for the NBA playoffs are coming in the conference finals and the finals. I mean, that's the real moneymaker for the league. And I think that they're looking at this as we need to have a ramp up where we can showcase Zion and try to get as many games of the Pelicans on national TV to draw, you know, multiple millions of people. And I get it, but I just think that you have to take these risks seriously. This is a deadly disease that continues to kill. Um, and it, is, it has not been brought into uh, a situation where it's under control in this country. And, you know, I understand if other people have a higher risk tolerance than me, I'm not saying I should be the commissioner. You're just asking me the question, what would you do if you were the commissioner? And, and I'm telling you, uh, you know, where I stand. I guess uh, you've said your piece well. I'm just going to say I feel like this – what you're asking for in the standard that our country is running by right now is an impossibility, right? Our country's not doing things to curtail this the way it once was. If that's your standard by which your the league has to open, they had no chance. If you're running a business and their businesses are open and the players are under the direction of the players union, understand the risk or what of, of what that is, and they're willing to play, and the business is willing to go. I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I, I think it's a risk. I think it's. I do think that they're playing extra games to make sure that the game's at its best in the conference finals and the finals. I do think they're extra playing extra games to be able to probably hit some of their regional sports network games. I heard Woj talk about a couple of hundred million dollars, but I'm not sure in the environment that we're in right now what that they could have hit any of the standards that you're asking them for. Yeah. And I understand that. And, that, and when Adam Silver comes out, you know, two months ago and says, Hey, look, these are the benchmarks we're going to use. Those benchmarks sounded very reasonable from him and those benchmarks haven't been met. And now he's thrown those benchmarks to the side. So I get, it's a very, very challenging situation. I'm glad that uh, it's not my job to make that call because it's a very, very difficult call. But ultimately, like, there's going to be blood on his hands if something bad here happens. God See, forbid someone garbage. dies. I got to tell you what, Ben. I think that's total garbage. I really do. I'm going to fire up on you here. We're in a new world, and we got to try new things. And we – we, it's not blood on his hands. I think that's – I've said this on our local radio stations a lot. There's a chance they're going to go, 
and there's a chance that eight players on a team are going to are test positive, and there's a chance they have to shut down the season, and they're going to get killed for it, and I think it's wrong. And I've said it for three weeks on our local stations. I'll say it here now. They've you because you can't just sit to the sideline and do nothing. They're trying to do the best they can in a new world, and there's a chance it's not going to work. But you've got to be willing to try something with the best advice that you have. We're, we are no longer going back to the old world we once had. That's a, that's a fallacy. So if we're going to play, we've got to try something, and this is what they're trying. And if a bunch of players, and it doesn't work, then they know it didn't work. But you're going to have to take risks with this virus around. I understand, but are you taking unnecessary risks here? And I would say you are. Uh, if you're bringing based 22 on, teams based on with, with teams uh, that have so, no chance that, to compete for a title, I don't see how you can't qualify that as an unnecessary Well, then, risk. I mean, then we probably should only brought back four. Well, I proposed that a few months ago to potentially scale down to eight teams, and, and you didn't like that idea at the time either. I mean, look, I've thought through this thing a lot of different ways in terms of how you could try to minimize the risk as much as possible while still crowning a champion that people will view as viable. Um, I understand it's a tricky situation, but to me, 22 teams is uh, significantly uh, more risk than um, I was expecting uh, when they were talking about this, playing the extra regular season games. They add up a lot. Every one of those games is a is a risk factor, and um, I would have approached it differently than they did. Uh, but you know, I understand. Uh, we're going to cover it. I'm going to be uh, participating in uh, the coverage of the league. I get it, um, but that's that's kind of my stand. And I, <laughs> to me, they're taking more risk than they need to take. And I really hope the players are as educated as you say they are, uh, or you assume they are, because I think it's really difficult to get. That type of information, obviously, it need, and there's a lot of peer pressure to play, of course, from the superstar level guys and also from the, the league and the executives who want to play. And I just, you know, feel for the players, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Well, I pre- I mean, we have a different viewpoint. We actually kind of think of all the same things. It's interesting how we come at it in different levels. I mean, I, so, and, and I will tell you that I, I, I haven't talked to like world renowned experts, but I've talked to the people who I trust the most. Their feeling is that. You know, we talked about this last week that 16 to 20 or 16 to 20 is it's not it's it might be increasing the risk. But the risk is the 16. The risk is playing. If you want no risk, then we just don't play. But that doesn't seem to be a reasonable option to anyone involved. Well, I think that they considered it at some point. I'm sure they did. And, I, you know, I'm sure that they're glad that they're going to try to go forward. But every sport in the world has had to shut down for long stretches here. Uh, there's other sports who are on similar timelines with basketball that have not yet announced comeback plans yet. Um, and those are sports that, you know, like say baseball, for example, that's a lower risk activity than basketball. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of risk involved with 16. There's more risk involved. Every team that you add, every person that you add to the bubble increases the risk. And so, yeah, I don't know. We're kind of talking in circles right. here, no, but that's, that's my stance. And, you know, I, I understand and appreciate the need to keep your business going. Look, this is a matter of retaining customers as well. You know, the longer that you go without basketball, the harder it is to win back the same fans that you had previously. And, and the harder it is to convert a new generation of fans because they're not actually getting to see your product and experience it firsthand. And the longer that you go without uh, basketball that actually has fans in the stands, the harder it is to keep, to keep those connections going. Look, all of our favorite moments with basketball 
uh, at least most of us who have been lucky enough to go to games, it's all those in-person things, right? It's the feeling you have when somebody hits a game-winning shot or you see an amazing dunk or an amazing block shot or uh, a buzzer beater or whatever else. I mean, it's those personal experiences that we all cherish. And, you know, right now we still have no idea when fans are going to be able to experience that again. It's a long way off. And I'm glad, frankly, that, um, you know, that that's how it is, that people are understanding the risk factor from the crowd standpoint and, and still continuing to go forward um, you know, without playing in front of, of crowds, because I think ultimately there's probably some voices out there who say, look, if fans are willing to buy a ticket, we should sell it to them and put them in that stadium and let them watch the game uh, and, you know, do what we can to protect the players from the fans, but at least we can get more money along the way. And, and to me, that would be an objectionable opinion, but I'm sure uh, there are owners who feel that way. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. I'm David Lockall. Clarify my temper tantrum and widen it out here in a second. Today's show is brought to you by rockauto.com. Rock Auto's catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. It's got everything for you. You go into the brick and mortar store, your choices are what they have in stock at their prices. Rock Auto's prices are the same for everybody and reliably low. Rock Auto always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do and some other people do. Rock Auto is for everybody and does not require membership or account login. If you are just looking for the simple item for your car or whether you're a do-it-yourselfer, rockauto.com is the answer for you. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your truck or your car right locked on on their, in the how did you hear about us box so we know who sent you. Amazing selection, reliably re- low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. Let me clarify my little temper tantrum that I had. I think this is universal to all aspects of society. Colleges, maybe restaurants. We cannot sit back and wait for the vaccine. We don't know it's coming. Therefore, we're going to have to try things. And we're going to fail. And at times, the virus is going to break out again, whether it's the second wave or whether we do something wrong. And we have to be willing to adapt, not criticize, and not force every decision maker and leader into a game of fear of failure to the point where we never make progress. Frankly, failures in this area will lead to progress. But not doing anything won't. We have to create our new lives. How we're doing things differently, whether it's social distancing inside of a stadium that seats 20,000 with 5,000 at some point, whether it's colleges having their large lecture halls be held for 20 people classes that are socially distanced while having their lecture hall classes on Zoom while trying to have kids on campus again. Whether it's the local fifth grade trying to find a way that 12-year-old kids can actually see 12-year-old kids again because they're not made to stick with mom and dad every minute. We have to try to move forward. And we have to try to move forward in a way that when people try it and it fails, we don't criticize them to the point in which everybody is frozen. 
And that's what I don't like about there's blood on his hands to Adam Silver comment. I think it's very unfair, and I think it's very damaging. Uh, I mean, I hear you, but all I can say is this is a, you know, if you're you're talking about how you want to reopen and restart society, uh, professional sports, indoor game, full contact would be one of the last things that most doctors and and many medical professionals would recommend. And if you're going to try things, uh, you know, obviously we're seeing gradual reopenings around the country, uh, you know, with mixed results. And there's other things that you could try before you would do that um, in a normal, logical progression based on how this thing is spread. Let me ask you this, flip it around. If you're in charge and you're the commissioner and we go forward with the current plan as is, is there any scenario in which you would pull the plug and stop the season? How bad does it have to get? What's your, what's your threshold tolerance for, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, blood? I don't know the number, but I think there's a point where if you have a, you know, seemingly extensive outbreak inside the bubble slash campus, whatever you're going to call it taking place, um, I mean, the obvious is if a team is stricken by it badly enough that they can't play a game, I think you've crossed over, right? Um, that's the obvious one. The minor one, or suddenly every team has two people, are we, is that suddenly probably two, have we crossed over? We might have crossed over at that point. So I think if we see a considerable outbreak and can tell that what is the, that the game itself is causing contagion, which we don't know from earlier this year, then I think that that's the moment where you you have to start to to realize that it didn't work, that the that the bubble or that the campus, whatever you want to call it, isn't working, um, and that's when you then have to reevaluate how you're going to do it in December, or whenever you try it again. For sure, and there's no, I mean, trying and even succeeding now and having this thing go flawlessly in in you know July and August, which is obviously possible, right? Um, is no guarantee that you're going to have the same result in December. And so that, uh, you know, is also a a tricky thing. This is a long-term problem, and we do need to think about it in that kind of a scope. Um, I guess my concern in terms of, like, the threshold question is, like, you know, if you're able to identify and isolate someone, um, you know, quickly, that's excellent. And that you could probably keep your your league going on uh, this summer if you're able to do that. Um, the tricky part is with the testing. It would be really helpful if they had announced their testing protocols and what they are planning to do so that we could determine, like, are the, how quickly are they going to be able to stop the type of outbreak that you're describing? And again, I mean, this is a, it's a messaging thing. It's an order of operations type thing. And, uh, you know, that's where I do think that the league, you know, from a communication standpoint, bears some responsibility. Um, if we were completely convinced, and I've been told by people who would know, that it's going to be a very rigorous and quality testing program, which is very heartening to to hear that. Um, It would be great if it was public and available to all of us so that we could, you know, ask doctors about it and say, Hey, what do you think? Are they doing the right things or not? Right now they've told us basically nothing. And we also know that what they've put in place in terms of the practice facilities for opening things up is not uh, conducive to team activity, right? I mean, you, you can't really socially distance a five on five practice in the same way that they have uh, socially distanced these individual workouts so far. And I think that the medical community gave them pretty good thumbs up in terms of how they set up the individual practices and workouts in terms of doing it in a safe way. And we haven't heard of any uh, cases of, you know, anyone like going into a practice facility here the last couple of weeks and, and all of a sudden contracting the, the virus or passing it to a staff or whatever else. So that's a great sign. But, uh, you know, I also, I guess I just hope that as we go forward, towards July, 
I mean, the pressure and expectations of getting these games back is going to increase, right? And they've built in some, you know, pretty smart steps from what we understand in terms of like an isolation quarantine period early, you know, getting back to, together with your team, uh, testing them at that point and everything else. I mean, I, I hope that they're using each one of the steps of that procedure uh, and that process, which we only sort of know generally right now, as a potential offering, right? Like, don't just blaze through this thing 100 miles an hour and try to get to the finish line. Like, if you're seeing red flags along the way, if there's something going wrong, if one team happens to have an outbreak and it does spread uh, when they're going through their their training camp or, or whatever it might be, um, you know, use that as an opportunity to reassess. And, you know, I think Adam Silver has built up a lot of goodwill and credibility on that, and so I, I do trust his judgment in general. I just think that the way this process has played out in the last two months is out of step from a lot of other aspects of his commissionership. He's Ben Golliver. I'm David Locke. We'll talk basketball on the floor. 22 teams. It sounds like what's going to be rectified. Today's show is brought to you in part by Built Bar. The Built Bar is the, they're rebuilding the way you think of energy bars. It's the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. 16 amazing flavors. Eight have nuts. Eight have no nuts, which I love because they're chocolate with no nuts and their bars are made in a nut-free facility, which makes it even easier and better for guys like me or people like me who have a nut allergy. They're healthy. They have great, what they call macros, low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber. So take, for example, the mint brownie, which I love. 15 grams of protein, 110 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 5 grams of net carbs. That's a pretty healthy bar for you, and they taste great. Go to BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code LOCKEDON. You'll get $10 off your first order. That's LOCKEDON for $10 off at BuiltBar.com. Bunch of people have hit me up that freezing them makes them even better. I've actually tried that recently as much as anything because then I can take them out on the golf course and get them to like the third or fourth hole because 100% chocolate. Got to be a little careful. Sometimes that'll melt on you. So if I freeze it, it lasts a little longer. Check it out. BuiltBar.com. Promo code LOCKEDON. 22 teams, eight games. One thing that's interesting to me, Ben, is like I read a Yahoo report that it'll you just look at your regular schedule and take out the teams that aren't there. And I suddenly dawned on me, like there's no bad teams there. Like wins are going to be hard to come by for people. No, the main talking point from the Pelicans fans is, oh, we've got this easy strength of schedule and Memphis uh, has such a tough strength of schedule the rest of the way. And like that's how they're going to make up the – the difference in the standings to claim that eight seed, right? And as you mentioned, all the easy teams, the cupcakes are out of there. So everybody has a, a much tougher schedule than uh, they would have in the, um, you know, in the normal 82 game season. Uh, I think the, the headline takeaway here is that usually we go into that first round of the playoffs and it's a little bit of a soft launch, right? Like it's, you know, it's not always the best matchups one versus eight. Sometimes they're done quickly and everything else. And I think, Instead, by by expanding this thing, uh, the basketball, the television benefit is that you're going to have a couple of races to keep an eye on. You know, not only those eight seed races, but also the seedings battles, uh, you know, in the especially in the middle of the Western Conference, which is really, really tight. So that's going to be determining your matchups. You know, th- those eight regular season games they're adding all have stakes. And then you're also getting, as I mentioned earlier, the Zion wow factor. And the bottom line is millions of people want to watch him play basketball. I don't think they care too much if it's an empty gym or not. I think he's been at that kind of a phenomenon stage here all season long, especially coming back from his injuries. So uh, they are going to open, I think, with a little bit more of a bang. 
um, rather than just going straight to the the 16 team playoff format because in in that situation you're having a bunch of you know probably lopsided first round matchups that are over pretty quickly. It's pretty interesting how much things could shift now in the sense that there's no home court advantage. Maybe it doesn't matter that much, um, but three through six in the West could certainly shuffle up. Now, maybe that just doesn't matter that much because they all end up playing each other in the first round of the playoffs. Oh, that's what I mean. That, that whole thing is wide open and that will get settled. And it'll be also really interesting to see how do teams approach this, right? Are there some teams that are going to ease back into it? They don't want to run up their stars minutes in the quote unquote meaningless regular season games. Are they willing to punt, um, you know, the home court advantage because there is no real tangible home court advantage because all the games are played in Orlando. Um, are others, you know, looking to get their best five units, you know, as many minutes together as possible to rebuild the chemistry quickly. I mean, it's going to be a real coaching challenge. And I imagine that, you know, coaches are going to approach it differently. I, I don't really don't know what to expect uh, from that standpoint in terms of how teams approach uh you know, approach those eight games. I think most likely many of them will be handled kind of like a warm-up situation. But, you know, like if you're the Lakers and you have a preferred team that you'd rather play in that 1-8 matchup and you're playing, say, a few of those teams in your eight-game sample, well, you're probably going to, uh, you know, uh, I guess calibrate how hard you're playing or how hard you're going for those wins to either, you know, let somebody in or bump somebody out. So I think there's going to be a lot of intrigue on that side, no doubt. The other one on Memphis is they. I kind of looked at it today. Like they kind of have to just win three games. I don't know if they can go three and eight, but that's what they have to do. They have to win three games to get to the eighth. And then if they actually win three games, I think they'll have enough. They won't have enough wins to prevent the play in. But they win three games, they're that eight seed. Like that's they're up three and a half right now. You're only playing eight games. That's what I mean. The eight game sample is not a very big one, right? Um, and so I, I do think that. You know, we're going to wind up dissecting that part of the schedule probably a lot, and it's going to wind up most likely not mattering because, you know, as we see in the NBA, usually like the top eight teams are a lot better than everybody else when it all shakes out. And usually the favorites kind of, uh, you know, walk away, uh, you know, the top four teams in each conference, I should say, walk away from the rest uh, once it's all said and done. But, um, you know, it will be fun to watch Memphis because they can kind of get in the bunker, right? They could be like, oh, this whole bracket thing is all just trying to take our spot away. I mean, I think if you're Taylor Jenkins, it's like built-in motivational ammo, right? You just tell your guys, look, like they're disrespecting us. Uh, they're just trying to have Zion take our place. And I think that, uh, you know, guys like John Morant, I mean, I could see that fueling his fire very easily. Well, and then there's the wild card on all of this. Like who's in shape, who's not? I'm a little bummed they didn't go one through 16. I really thought when they brought in four or four Western Conference teams and they brought in one Eastern Conference team, we were seeding one through 16. And I thought I that's, you know, if your disappointment, some of this, maybe this tells you how concerned you, you know, I have no heart and you do. Uh, that's my bummer. I thought let's do something different. It is a different year. Let's do the one through 16. I thought that would have been a really neat experience, whether it got you the Lakers Clippers or the Bucks Raptors. I didn't really care. I just thought it would add to a different element than something we'd ever had. And you'd look back in your old sporting news, basketball guide or whatever, you know, I'm making that up, but like <laughs> you'd look back and be like, Oh, that's the year where that happened 30 years from now. I'm a little concerned that like 30 years from now, you're going to look back at this and it's going to be like, what was up with that year? Like I, I, I wish we'd had the one through 16. 
Well, let me ask you. I, I mean, I always want the one to sixteen in any year, so I'm kind of with you on that. But would you have liked it even better if the home court advantage was the top seed got to pick their opponent like every round? Sure. You know what I mean? Because I, I saw some people float that out. And I do kind of feel bad for the higher ranked seeds because, like, what's the benefit of all that hard work for four or five months where, you know, what, what difference does it really wind up making here? Well, it will be interesting to see in that the an, the analysis of the schedules. Like, so if the Yahoo report is right, and I don't know if you've reported as well, I apologize if you have, that you just go through your team schedule and drop out the teams. It, it can't exactly work that way. Uh, it's just the math doesn't work. Like, someone's not going to have enough games that way or, some like, somebody is – so it's got to be a little variation on that. Like, I think, like, you understand what I'm saying? Like, if some teams have, I just don't think it works exactly that way. But it's interesting, like, the Jazz would play the Lakers twice and the Spurs at the end twice. Like, the Lakers are up six, five and a half, six games. They they might not actually care at all, right? And then you've got the Spurs by the games two and three, they might be knocked out. So for all you know, like, you actually got, like, an easy schedule, which looks like a hard schedule. Like, you don't have any idea. Uh, on the over analysis of what these schedules means is going to be fascinating for sure. And I guess like, let's take that in the next step though. So let's say Utah somehow gets up to the two seed because of those factors you're describing. What real benefit do they get besides an easy, a somewhat easier first round opponent after that point? Because in a normal year, if that's your closing run, you get to the two seed and now you've got home court in the first couple of rounds and you've got a great home court. If you're Utah, it's like, this is great. This is the best thing ever. Now it's like, okay, well, you have all this, you know, positive momentum kind of heading into the playoff bracket, but you don't have much of anything to show for it, especially after that first round where, you know, once the, the weaker teams drop out, like the, the seven and the eight seed, you know, everybody's really good and nobody's got a home court advantage. So it's just kind of, uh, it's almost like a summer league atmosphere, you know? Well, and the other one I would tell you is uh, I did a bunch of, ran a bunch of numbers that I can always do as my pre-playoff prep was it is I go look at the lineup data of all of the NBA teams and eliminate guys who aren't going to play in the playoffs, right? So if you look at Dallas, you take out the, you know, Dal Carlisle plays everybody, right? So you take out some of those guys that are just simply not going to play and look at their overall plus minus. Dallas is the absolute surprise team in this thing. I would want no part of Dallas if I it was anyone. They, they, they are originally marked up with the Clippers who are great also so that, you know, they probably wouldn't have got the upset, but if they get anyone other than the Clippers and the Lakers in the first round, or maybe even if they get the Clippers, who knows? But Dallas is the team I would not want to touch if I was another team. Yeah, I mean, you can argue these things every way because it's like, okay, well, Dallas has this amazing like record-setting offense, so if they're able to come back and just pick up where they left off because they have that ingrained chemistry and they've been doing it all season long, they cut out all the weak links of their rotation, their offense gets even better. They've got a top three or four playmaker in the league. Like these guys are set. They don't have to worry about the fear factor of the playoffs because they're not opening the playoffs on the road in a hostile environment. They're opening it in a gym where they can just, you know, feel comfortable. And then I guess you could flip it around and say, well, are they going to be able to get back to that same level offensively after a three month break where, you know, Lucas flown overseas, you have to fly him back. What kind of shape is he in? The whole thing kind of revolves around him. Um, and they were pretty late to open their practice facility. Dallas was because Mark Cuban was quite cautious about that. So, you know, you have these other variables that are like just completely warp and distort what our normal analysis would be. And, um, you know, it's, it's tough to know, man. Like, I guess ultimately we're, we're going to find out uh, what, uh, what factors really matter. Is talent just going to wind up winning out? Is it going to be fitness plus talent? Uh, I have no clue. And then, 
the last piece of this puzzle, which is just a big, huge topic, and we're going to have time, and we don't have any idea, is the whole aspect you have no fans. So you have no home court. You have a different environment. And then you have, so that's that's part one. That, that That's just different. And then we have this aspect that it's, we're talking on June 3rd. We're not playing for six and a half weeks. I, I may be wrong. I don't feel like the movement that is going on in our country is going to be over in six weeks. Like this feels bigger to me. I don't feel it's like dissipating tomorrow. Six weeks is a long time in our world, so I don't know how long it lasts. But it will be very interesting to see how the players who are very politically active and engaged in what's taking place makes make themselves heard while being in this unique environment. Like, that's a whole other aspect of this that is going to just... that gets gets It just adds... Because I don't think this is... A, a momentary item. I lived through the 91 riots in LA. You, you felt like they were going to end at some point. This one doesn't feel the same way. I'm with you a thousand percent. I mean, imagine the players who were leading uh, protests and like Jalen Brown driving what, 10 or 15 hours to Atlanta to lead a protest. Um, you know, could you really fault him for wanting to leave the bubble to go lead another protest? But if he does, you know, he's, he's probably out for at least two weeks because of the, the whole need for a quarantine. So that's going to, you know, change player perception, player behavior. I mean, we could also see situations like we saw with the European soccer players over the weekend where there's, you know, displays with their T-shirts of support for whether it's George Floyd or, or some other movement. And that gets into a situation where, um, you know, does the league have to uh, turn a blind eye to that like they did with the I Can't Breathe T-shirts? Or do they have to sort of, uh, you know, talk to the superstar level players and say, hey, guys, we need to reach an agreement about how we're going to do this what level of protesting is going to be acceptable, what crosses some imaginary line. And these are wide open questions. And again, it goes back to the timing issue. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, knowing Adam's track record and how he wanted to handle something like the Donald Sterling thing as quickly and neatly as possible, I imagine this was a really, really tough week for him. You know, and he, he sent out an internal memo over the weekend that was saying like, this is a moment to kind of pause and take a step back and we need to have further reflection and, he said, like, you know, for someone in my background, I can't have the same lived experiences as, uh, you know, the, the African-American players and coaches and other employees of the league. And I think that's absolutely true. And that gets more true every single day, uh, the longer that this thing goes on uh, in, in terms of the protest movements uh, this summer. And, you know, ultimately, uh, the NBA, if they're back at playing these games, that's a massive stage. And I, I imagine a lot of these players will have messages that they want to share uh, when they're on that stage, we know millions of people watch LeBron's post-game press conferences, and LeBron hasn't had that same visibility here even this summer. Um, and I imagine he will not squander it. You know, he he will make every uh, possible use, and it won't just be him. It'll be a lot of different players doing that. And you know, that is one thing that could come out of this positively. There's there's no question. I think the uh, best part about that will be how fabulous our players are. I think. I think our players universally are stunningly well thought uh, out, are universally thoughtful, and are much uh, more well-rounded than people realize. And I, the last one I would add is much more interested in knowledge and what's going on than people realize. At least that's what I experience when I'm around our guys all the time. And I think it'll be, they've had plenty of time recently 
to uh, become even more well-versed. And I think we'll see that. And I'm excited to see that. No, the NBA players have been unbelievable civil rights leaders. I mean, look, it start with Steven Jackson, a guy who I think a lot of people remembered for the malice in the palace. I mean, he came out and was a major, major, major force in getting those protests off the ground because of his close relationship with George Floyd. You go from him to Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon, who I thought uh, provided an unbelievable positive image of peaceful protests alongside you know, people being pulled out of their own cars in the same city in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, you know, which one of those images do most of us uh, side with? I mean, there's there's no question we're, we're on the player side between those two. You go to former players like Doc Rivers, uh, you know, Dwayne Casey, a, a longtime coach. Uh, Michael Jordan raised his voice. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had an unbelievable editorial. I mean, the NBA community responded here in the last week in a big, big time way. And the players are the ones who deserve the credit. To my knowledge, I don't think the NBA has still put out an official statement on it as a league itself. Uh, many of the teams have, of course, but the players are the ones who are driving it, and they deserve all the credit for that. Uh, I think uh, I think you might have mentioned him. I just want to. Uh, Lonnie Walker did some cool stuff in San Antonio. Also, that was another name I was absolutely super impressed with because he's really the, the young, cleanup, the, right? clean, like, the clean, cleanup stuff, right? Yeah, he's like, and he's I think he's nineteen or twenty, right? Like when I was nineteen yeah. or twenty, I was not that. In, I was not like that. I was pretty self-absorbed still. Like, that was pretty impressive. For sure. Well, look, I mean, the, the younger generation, a lot of people say it, but they get it in a different way than we do. I think the power of the phone really showed through um, over the last week, too. I mean, when I compare this to, say, the Kaepernick situation a few years ago or the I Can't Breathe situation with Eric Garner, the level of saturation in terms of how every single person basically who has a smartphone was touched by this, uh, uh, by this nationwide protest is just incomparable. It's so much deeper. It's so much wider. You're seeing protests in small towns around the country, big cities. Um, it's a real moment, like you said earlier. I mean, you, you hit it spot on. And this is this is not the same thing as the LA riots. This is a different situation, and I think it's going to have a you know a different payoff when it's all said and done. There was a cautiousness to what all the teams did with the anthem and how they were going to represent themselves after Kaepernick. I don't think that cautiousness is going to be here this time. Well, it's a different political climate, right? We're deeper into it. I think that the frustrations around the country are riding high for other reasons besides, you know, just police brutality. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who are hurting financially, a lot of people who have lost their jobs. Um, There's a lot of people who feel like they've been pushed too far and they've just had enough. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, tear gas in the nation's capital is being used to clear uh, protesters and you've got, uh, you know, guys with, uh, you know, big guns and, and your huge protective suits standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. That's not something we had during the Kaepernick situation. That's not a, a living condition that we saw during the Eric Garner aftermath, right? This is uncharted territory, new water for sure. And, um, you know, I think that uh, you're right. I mean, every aspect of the response is going to change. And I'm with you. I'm kind of betting on the players. They're going to be up to the moment. There's no doubt in my mind. Ben Golliver, Washington Post. Keep reading him there. Go to his Twitter account, at Ben Golliver, and get his newsletter. I appreciate your ability to go back and forth with a little heat there and still finish up a great show. Thank you very much. Oh, I love getting yelled at, Locke. You don't have to feel bad about it, man. Come on. That's what this is all about. This is what we're doing. We're yelling about sports. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, Sharp might have texted me. Might not have. I have no idea. I will, I will never reveal the truth. <laughs> 
He is Ben Golliver. Hollinger and Duncan put out a new show today or this week as well, so make sure you go grab that. Tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of Hollinger and Duncan.